I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And this is Constellation, making the graphic novel. Join us as we build an original science fiction world. All right, everybody. Welcome back. This is the Constellation Podcast. Uh, as always, Ted is with me. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, John? I'm good. I don't know if it's audible my voice that I've been sick. Uh, if it is, and it sounds weird, I apologize. But uh, I'm I'm good enough to go ahead, and I'm excited to do uh, what we're recording. I guess, should we even say what we're doing right now? We're recording uh, uh, two... Yeah, we may as uh, well bring back the curtain. Why not? We're doing a little bit of an experiment this time, and we're going to... We we did we each did a pack of pages between now and the last recording. So we're going to be doing basically a double episode where we do ten pages that I wrote and then uh, another pack of pages that John wrote right in a row. And if this works out, we're going to keep doing this in the future for the rest of the first draft just to try to get uh, it pick done up the a pace. bit quicker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, both of us have had things going on in our lives, and they're a little bit less. Uh, pressing right now so we're trying to move just a little bit quicker through this um all right so should we jump right in because we do have a lot to do today yeah so the first Great. uh batch of pages is from you yeah this is from me and uh, you'll remember last time we left off with the Catalian uh priest ocean songbird telling our heroes that they needed to build their own shelters uh so as we move forward into this i'll be reading the narration and the other characters and John will be reading the voice of Tim. Uh, so, all right, let's 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 jump right into it, all right? Let, let's do it. Okay, page 102. It is four panels. And the first panel shows Tim, Zoya, and Saba standing in a small clearing in the forest. Tall pines create a curtain surrounding them. They have a few bundles of stuff with them, including axes, blankets, etc. Saba is already constructing a lean-to against a tree trunk. And Tim in voiceover says... On Catal, time moves at a glacial pace. No exec, no instantaneous travel. Screens are far and few between. People watch the fire burn for entertainment, like apes. Next panel, Tim ties down an animal skin to make a roof on his simple lean-to. Days feel like weeks. Weeks feel like months. Months feel like eternities. We make lean-tos. Next panel, weeks later, Tim and three other Catalian men surround his wooden cabin with a thatch roof. The men applaud and Tim beams. Then some neighbors help us upgrade them. Next panel is inside the cabin. Rain pours outside. Tim reclines, listening. He seems calm. Out the window, we might catch a glimpse of Zoya and Saba's similar huts just beyond Tim's. The sound of the rain on a thatched roof is nice. So is the feeling of having done a hard day's work. I can remember that from the old days. Sound effects. Plink, 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 ploop, plink, ploop. Okay, next page. It's a different day. Tim and Saba take archery lessons from a Catalan archery master. He's demonstrating a technique for pulling back the string. Tim is pointing at his right hand. Saba is reaching out to touch the arrowhead. Zoya is sitting on a crude chair slapping a mosquito. Sound effects. It's different for Zoya. People of her generation never had to sleep on the ground. They have no idea what mosquitoes are. Next panel, Saba is pulling his hand back in pain from the arrowhead. His finger spurts blood. Saba's face bears a grin. Saba says, Ow! Saba's an odd duck. He seems to get a perverse pleasure in all of this. 
It's as if he's just down to try anything once. Honestly, I can respect that. In the temple, everyone is bowed in prayer, but Tim has his head cheated up and is looking across the room. As I explore the central settlement, I keep my eyes open for a suitable target. A busy village scene. Farmers carrying pitchforks, chefs chopping vegetables with great big knives, hunters with arrow and quiver carrying a dead deer are all visible walking to and fro. Tim stands in the center watchful. Sharp implements are everywhere. It's not so much doing the job as getting away with it that will be the challenge. Next panel, we're back inside the house where Banana died. That was from last time. If you don't remember, Banana was a, a, an older Catalian who died in, in John's pages last time. Uh, a broad, wide, wooden, wigwam-style building with rows of hospital beds, each with charming handmade totems on a wooden table next to the elderly patient. Nurses administer opium via IV to several of the patients. Family members and uh, priests are also scattered around, attending to the elderly people there. Tim looks in from the street, peering in to see the weak spot. The old and infirm are well attended. Uh, Next page, a long wide panel of an open field. A child plays innocently on the left side, holding a wooden toy. Unknown to him, Tim, Tim stalks the child on the right side of the frame. His look and position in the composition making him positively demonic. Don't have quite the heart to do in a child. Not without seriously considering other options, anyway. Uh, Next panel is the same location, uh, same exact shot. Uh, Tim is slapping a mosquito on his own leg. Thwack! I'd feel a lot better about this whole thing if I could find someone who actually deserves it. Next panel, Tim's cabin night. He lies awake, thinking. It keeps me up most nights. Next panel, night. Tim walks from his own cabin toward Zoya's, which he can see has a light coming from the window. In the next panel, which is later, Tim is in Zoya's cabin, holding a mug. She's sitting on the floor, drinking from her own mug. A small fire glows between them. I'm not feeling terrific about all this, Tim says. Aside from the obvious moral objection, there's the matter of how to actually get away with it. Last thing any of us wants is for us all to get convicted of a crime here. Next panel, Zoya, a sad look on her face, speaks to Tim. Well... What do you want to do? Next page, close on Tim, trying not to look at Zoya. We might have to talk to Saba and see what kind of leeway we have here. Katal may not be the answer. Panel two, silent panel in which Zoya and Tim look at each other. Next panel is close on Zoya. If that's what you want, she says. I'll back you up. Uh, Next panel, Tim and Zoya look at each other. Tim drinks from his mug. This next line, he says uh, only in voiceover to himself. What is she saying? Is she trying to get rid of me? Well, he couldn't do the last trial, so... Next panel, Tim looks stoic. Zoya looks away. And Tim says out loud, No, no, I'll I'll figure something out. Next panel, Tim is turning back towards Zoya on his way out the door. What were you doing up this late? Next panel, close on Zoya, who's clearly lying. It's all the bugs here. They drive me crazy. All right. On the next page, uh, Tim has walked out into the night. The moon lights the clearing. To one side are his and Zoya's huts. To the other is a path into the forest. Next panel is the same angle, but now Tim is about to enter the path into the forest. So I'm thinking, you know, Tim has moved in in the frame to show that he's walked. Next panel, 
Tim is centered in the frame, walking down a wooded path, trees lining the way. His face is ashen, despairing. The Catalian woods are thick with old growth. Owls and bats and snakes hide in the shadows. What am I doing? Wandering into the woods at night. I really ought to know better. In a place like this, you could get badly hurt. Or worse. The next panel, which is a long panel that ends the page. Dark woods fill the frame. Far right, as if he's looking off the page, Tim stares with his eyes wide with shock. And that was when I realized I wasn't alone. Next page. A little further down the wooden path. Hidden in the other underbrush on the left side of the frame, Tim looks out on us. Larger and on the right side, closer to us, a man walking in silence down the path, carrying a pair of bags balanced on the wooden staff across his shoulders, his arms wrapped up around the staff. In the dark, we can just barely make out that this is Cranium Whiskers, the priest. The priest? What's he up to? Next panel, the priest continues down the path, unaware that Tim is behind him. Tim is entirely in shadow, but we recognize him by his outline while Whiskers is illuminated in the moonlight. I follow him down past the river to a hillside cave. Panel three in the cave. The woods are visible out of the mouth of the cave. The priest is pushing away a false wall to reveal a 20th century style TV room with a classic Howdy Doody episode playing on the large rear projection television. There is a popcorn machine, among other amusements, lined up at the back of the room. Uh, next panel, a different angle some time later. Cranium is in the TV room, giggling and eating popcorn as a Western plays. Looking in on him from the cave in silhouette is Tim. It's not as if I had bought into any of the Catalian nonsense, but I could respect that people lived by their own beliefs. Something about the hypocritical priest really gets to me. Next panel is close on Tim's eyes watching this. For the first time, it hits me. I'm going to kill someone. Even closer, his giant eye looking wild and on edge. Maybe cranium is reflected in his pupils. Not to someone, this guy. All right, next page. Tim is in the hut's doorway gesturing. Saba and Zoya follow him. The next night, I get Zoya and Saba to come with me into the woods. And then Tim says out loud, come on, this ends tonight. Next panel, the three of them carefully pick their way through the dark woods. Saba holds a small candle in one hand and shields the flame from the wind with his other. Tim gestures the direction for them to go. He carries a bow and arrow like the one the hunters used. Zoya also has something in her hand, though what it is, we cannot easily see. Next panel, in the cave, Tim gestures to them to hide behind a large boulder. We hide in the cave and wait for the priest to arrive. Next panel, Tim blows out Saba's candle, and the next panel is just a black panel, showing that the candle's gone out. Next panel after that, in the dim moonlight, we can make out the priest once again entering. He is pushing aside the false wall and revealing his secret TV den, a sliver of which can be seen. Behind the large boulder, we make out the backs of Tim's, Saba's, and Zoya's heads, all watching. Just when I start to worry that I caught him on an off night, he shows up, bags of popping corn hanging off his conjuring staff. Next panel, Tim, face lit by the t priest's TV off screen, has a hardened look. What a piece of shit. 
Okay, next panel. In the den, the priest has closed his false flap. He sits in his easy chair, eating popcorn and watching a show that might as well be Baywatch. I watched him through a crack in the door. He was so pathetic. It made me want to laugh. Next panel, Tim watches through the crack, light hitting his face in a line as it escapes the den into the cave around it. He holds his bow. Next panel, Tim furrows his brow. He is reaching back into his quiver. Next panel, Tim is pulling back on the arrow in the uh, Tim Tim is pulling back the arrow on the string. Next panel, back in the den. The false door is kicked open. The priest is looking up in shame and shock. Tim is standing in the doorway, arrow poised. This is it. The moment is now. Next page, Tim points the arrow at the priest's neck. He's at point blank range, so no no way he could miss. Next panel, the priest gulps. Next panel, Tim flicks his eyes back at Saba and Zoya, who are peeking out from behind the rock in the cave. Next panel is close on Saba, licking his lips. Now you've got him, says Saba. Next panel, Zoya looking at Saba with either disgust or anger. It's hard to say. Next panel, Tim looks straight at us like we were the priest. The arrow's drawn and his face is cold. I have to do it now. Why am I hesitating? Just let the damn thing fly. Next page, close on Tim's face, his eyes showing extreme shock as he gurgles his final sound. The sound effects goes thwack. Next panel is a larger panel, mostly black, with figures in silhouette showing Zoya, body wildly extended as if she'd just thrown an axe as hard as she could. Tim is midair, chest out as if he's been hit from behind and has a small axe protruding from the back of his head. His bow is snapped and the arrow is embedded at a 45 degree angle into the ground. Saba is ducking below the boulder and peeking around the side to see who died. Sound effect says, thud. Next panel, Tim slumps down on the ground, bleeding profusely. His eyes are open, but rolling up into his head. The axe is still lodged in his skull. Next panel, close on Tim's lifeless dead face. And the last panel of the page, Zoya has stepped into the light. All right, nice. Okay, so those are my pages. I mean, first of all, I... I, there's a, there's a lot of stuff I like, so obviously if I don't mention that, um, then then I wouldn't. That's nothing I would change. Um, and a lot of this is close to stuff we talked about. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, I think the first thing is like, I mean, honestly, the main thing that we're gonna have to do, I think, probably just with the whole script, once we finish everything, is like really think about like Tim's progression, you know, and like where sort of his head is at with all this. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, that's, that's going to be a big thing for the rewrite is, yeah, because some parts don't even have voiceover now, and yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. So, I mean, what, this is a very intense, like, almost, it almost feels like an Edgar Allan Poe story or something, because, like, it's, like, from the point of view of someone, like, you know, plotting a murder, right? And then, like, trying to execute it. Like, right. It's a, very, it's a very intense thing, so it's, like, there's a lot of ways to play this. Um, so, I mean, I, I think like a lot of the things you've chosen are interesting, but then we've got to make sure that they'll work with the whole script if we do that. So like, to me, those are the kinds of issues that this brings up, but, um, I'm being vague on purpose cause I'm not, you know, sure I have the right answers yet, but, um, mm-hmm. that all makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, the first thing that actually marked here is like when he's talking about Saba, um, 
it's helpful because it sort of explains what we and I had read, uh, you and I had read about Saba, which is that he's sort of enjoying this and that that's sort of a fun character trait of his, that he likes being bitten by mosquitoes and so on because it's novel. Right. Um, I'm just not totally sure how like Tim should be talking about him at this point, right? It's like Tim still, I don't know if starstruck is the right word, but like, I mean, this guy is his ticket into this thing that he wants more than anything, right? So is he seeing through Saba right now and like Saba's kind of a joke to him or does he still have this sort of like reverence for Saba? I just think that that's going to influence how he talks about him here. So I just had a, had a question about that, the sort of way he was talking about Saba as an odd duck who takes pleasure in it, but I can respect that. Seemed, you know, more of a distance point of view on him than maybe I might have expected. But then also they've been now in this world for a while, so maybe Tim is like a little disillusioned with Saba. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I was struggling with that same question, and I agree that it may need a tweak. I mean, uh, I didn't really know how he felt about Saba because um, we didn't do voiceover in the restaurant scene really very much. So, um, yeah, it may be that he is um, not identifying with him enough, or it may be that, um, you know, that he still is... Uh, odd by him, but he's just odd by how weird he is, you know? I mean, because I don't know, even if Tim feels this way, I don't know that he's met a lot of people who are like this. So maybe it's more, maybe the line is more like, I've never met anyone who lives their, you know, who who lives their novelty ideals the way this guy does or something, you know? I, I don't know. But yeah, I agree that that's, um, that's something I we just, can look at. Yeah, and that's like, again, it's almost more of a question for us on the next pass than yeah, it is like yeah. a critique or anything. I didn't necessarily like, yeah, feel I had yeah. an answer to that. I just sort of was doing the exposition we needed and figured, you know, thought I'd try the simplest route. And yeah, but. Uh, the next thing is kind of minor. I was just sort of wondering about like IVs in this world and whether they should exist. Um, I mean, I guess can you have a really primitive IV? I guess you kind of can. You can. But... I mean, you also could conjure a machine that makes the tubes and, you know, just, you only really need one such machine. So I don't know. I, I, I thought about whether they would, you know, cause they do care about their old people and they, they are going to have a lot of folks who are going to be reaching senescence and dying that way due to their other settings. So wouldn't, shock me if they had IV but if we want to have it all be opium pipes instead that they're smoking out of or something uh like that's I'm super down for that yeah yeah I mean opium that's sort of like made like, sense because that's a low tech thing but uh, I mean like I yeah. gave them opium as a drug just because that's right that's feels that's one of the more effective natural drugs for painkilling um so yeah like opium I don't care about IV or not yeah, we could. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that, yeah, that that I wasn't, I wasn't sure, you know. But uh, I'd, I'd buy it if, if we have a, like a, an explanation too. Sure. Um, I guess the the bigger note here is that like he's that comes up in the scene where he's sort of scoping out the infirmary, you know, for victims. Yeah. And I just, we, I think we had talked about at one point that like, um. And it made me. I guess this even isn't even necessarily tied to this particular victim, but like. Tim's not doing a lot of justifying, I guess, in this voiceover, which again, I think is another choice, right? Like maybe at this point he's like already, he's already decided he's going to do it. So it doesn't matter. 
right? But And I guess he does say he w- would be good if it was someone who deserved it. But I guess I was just reminded of this logic of how, like, the Catullians, like, sort of have already chosen death, one could argue, right? Uh, that they're, that someone who murders a Catullian is just sort of altering the timeline. Yes. That's a bit of an absurd argument uh, to make, especially given our world. But uh, it's something you could imagine someone telling themselves in the Constellation. Um, yeah, yeah. It, that's and right. so I just I wondered if if maybe Tim should make that point somewhere unless like uh like Saba doesn't does Saba make that point I think, in the yeah, previous Yeah, I was about to say I think Saba makes that point in the restaurant. Uh we can double check. Um uh but maybe not he I think he makes the point that they've chosen death. I I don't know if he completely makes the connection that of of altering the timeline of like literally just changing the date of death, which maybe that is a specifically interesting sort of sub point that Tim should say. Um, I'm yeah, I'm very open to. It's just a rational. I, I you know this whole way through. I'm just thinking like you know how is Tim rationalizing this and like that was just one that I remembered that we talked about. That, yeah, that I didn't no, want, I think didn't that's fair. I I think I you know I just yeah I think I probably just missed missed that and trying to figure out how to keep the story moving and, and also get through some of this stuff. But yeah, I, th- I think that's something we can look at for sure. Um, I think another minor thing was um, the, the priest is watching these, like a howdy duty episode, I think in the first sequence and then it's something. It and then like it's Bay a Western Watch, in the. Oh yeah. It's a Western. And then, yeah, yeah. So I'm just wondering like um, that like feels sort of appropriate but then i sort of like put it together with our timeline and it maybe isn't quite appropriate right like um like we don't really know who cranium is right but he's been living by natural rules so he's got to be pretty far away from the times of these reruns right oh yeah Um, no i uh, my assumption was that he is um that he is not zero gen at all in fact he was born on Catal and that these that his obsession with with like classic black and white television is like a sort of random one not not like a not like a nostalgic obsession but okay like so a, there's like no nostalgic connection here at all yeah that might, I guess I just assume that that would like be the case be, given we, no I'm other not, explanation like, I'm not at all married to this specific this was just like a a purely random specific to just plug it in and see how it worked um but I guess I just wanted all the things to look old-fashioned instantaneously at the second you saw them. Um, So that's why I chose 20th century style uh, rear projection television, which would have been like a 1970s television. So that's not a CRT. That's one of those really weird, you know, like curved screens that has a a projector in front of it. Um, And... uh, you know, and howdy doody, and like a, I was thinking a western, like a black and white, you know, like a gun smoke type thing. Okay, so, so he's uh, like, yeah, the, like, like the, the, a the modern day. Was like, it's just like a weird nostalgic love for some period of time he never lived through. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, which is analogous to to you know things we know, people we know, like it's like people uh, living fifties diners or whatever. Yeah, you have the we have the internet, especially. It's like very easy to like go into old movies, old music, whatever you want. Exactly. Right? So people fall in love with certain you know, uh, decades, uh, for whatever reason that they like, you know, never lived during. Um, right. so this is more like that. Okay. Um, I don't but know I'm why I didn't read that way to, that, to me, by the way, that that's the premise, but 
yeah, yeah. Uh, it could be anything and it doesn't even need to be something nostalgic it just needs to be against their rules i mean it could be literally anything so it's a it's yeah a i think the only other thing. idea that we had floated in the past was like a secret pet or something but uh oh, yeah and a secret pet's funny too i mean yeah there i have no particular at- attachment but to there's this. something about the secret it. tv den that also feels like kind of appropriate so i don't i don't know yeah there's uh, something maybe just like a little pathetic about it that i enjoyed yeah. Uh, like that this guy's going to get murdered over this pathetic thing that he likes, <laughs> but you know, whatever. Okay. Oh yeah. So, so that makes more sense now. And then I got two more thoughts. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, Tim has like this really intense contempt for this priest and the fact that he's like a hypocrite. Yeah. Um, which sort of like culminates him in being, him being like, what a piece of shit, you know? Yeah. Um, so I thought, again, this is just a, you know, just a question here, right? Okay, that's like a strong choice. Like, the, Tim is like really very negatively responding to this hypocrisy. Is mm-hmm. that like, that to me seems like, okay, if we're going with that, that now would, seems like that would become almost like a fundamental character trait of Tim that we would need to backfill a little bit. Um, You know, that he just like is you know, really wants people to sort of have integrity and like commit to the, to what it is they're doing. Um, Cause that could come out in his conversation with Arturo or something like if that's a stance that we want Tim to have, you know? Yeah. And I think um, that's a- adjacent to stances he already has too. Like he's already somewhat criticized some people for what, what he perceived as like lack of commitment. I feel like, but not maybe for hypocrisy exactly, but we could, that could be shifted. Um, yeah, I, I guess I haven't picked up on that thread until now. Like where there's others like scenes where he's done that. I feel like it, it, specifically when talking with Arturo, there's some discussion of, you know, taking their conceptual basis to its furthest conclusion or something like that. That feels a little bit like adjacent to this. Well, that's where I thought we could fit it in there. But I guess like that. Okay, I'd have to go back and reread the. Yeah, Arturo I, stuff. I don't think it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, but I, I think that it's close enough that I could see us t- shifting it toward that without too much trouble. Yeah, I guess you know when I wrote these lines, I guess I was thinking more along the lines of that this is justification. Uh, this is him convincing himself. Yeah, that occurred to me too. Um, Although it's so venomous sounding that I don't. It almost seems to go beyond that to me. But, well, and so maybe that's just draftiness. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional, but. Um, yeah, but I, I guess uh, I, I do think that, as you say it, he, it does strike me as a Tim-like feature to be sort of annoyed with hypocrisy. Um, so I could see that being something that he... And he, I feel like he also sort of needles his son for perceived hypocrisy uh, due to his, you know, defaultist beliefs. Uh, you're right. You're right. That he, yeah. You know, yeah, like I feel I like there's things that are like adjacent to this that we already have that we're not calling attention to. Well, because he himself is so singularly committed, and I guess we imagined him as his history as being a series of serial commitments, right, right to different right. concepts of right. which the latest is just getting into the club. So yeah, maybe it maybe just. Maybe it fits in. So I don't know. I just wanted to flag it because it really came out to me. And I was like, well, if we're going to make it this intense here, we should build to it. And maybe that's a, even a good thing um, right. to, to use. Well, I may have um, made it too intense. That's possible. I, I also guess I was trying to just make it intense because it's an intense moment, too. You know, there's all this murder tension. 
Uh, so yeah, I I think that's that's a really good catch, and I'm. I think I probably unintentionally made it more intense than I intended to, but maybe we should, you know, I we could potentially just sort of, yeah, just commit to that and 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 make it um, more of a baked in thing. I don't think it would be hard to do that. So yeah, that's something we can consider. Okay, or or, or we can tone it down. I something mean, something to something to think about that I yeah. noticed. And then the last note is uh, you've got. Uh, Saba fully says, I think, you know, in, in earshot of the priest, and I believe all the priest is also actually like already seen that Tim is about to kill him. And Saba shouts, now you've got him as in like egging Tim on to do it, which is of course something Saba would do. Uh, so that makes sense. But I, I think this is maybe not how I had imagined it happening because of how I believe we sort of sketched out the next sequence where I thought it was going to be um Zoya and Saba lying in such a way that they're trying to like plausibly tell the story that they came out there to rescue the priest um and there's just like you know there's no way they could tell a lie like that if Saba is like get him you know and the priest hears it well so I'll tell you what I was thinking when I did this and then and then I'll tell you something else I just thought so oh I when I did this I was thinking that since Saba is outside hiding behind the boulder that he could that this is more of a whisper that this is more of a now you got him not like a shout that the priest would hear so my my initial thought was basically that this is not an earshot of the priest per se i see so we just use a smaller bubble and we could use a smaller bubble we could italicize it or whatever to make it more clear we could also cut the line um, you know, if we feel that that is breaking reality too much, which, you know, I think this is like a sort of liberty that stories often take and sometimes it bothers me and sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, I tried it here. Um, where sometimes like something that should technically be overheard is not overheard by a particular character. Um, there's like a whole bit, uh, bit in that recent, uh, Aaron Sorkin movie, uh, being the Ricardos about this, uh, you know. Uh, whether the plausibility of her hearing him walk in the door, you know, ruins the, the gag oh, or yeah. whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. I remember and that. I, um, um, I remember like I, as I was watching that movie, I was thinking like, well, I don't really care about the plausibility of this gag. Like, I'm not sure that this is as important as the movie's making it out to be, but whatever. Anyway, that's, that's what I was originally thinking, which is pretty weak, honestly. I mean, that's what it is, but, but, um, what I was thinking is that actually all he says is now you've got him and given what happens next, he could plausibly right. claim that he'd mm-hmm. said that to Zoya and that what he was saying was say, you know, what he was telling Zoya to save the priest. So if we actually, if we wanted to play that for, for a reversal, we could, I think, um, which was not my original intention. Well, and or he could be, he could be literally saying that to Zoya. Like when we come back from that's the, right. uh, the That's flashbacky right. stuff, which we're about to get into, which I started writing. Um, when we come back to complete this sequence, we could see Saba saying it where he's actually looking at Zoya behind him with an axe or something. Right. Um, and it's clear who he was actually talking to. Uh, that could be interesting. I mean, it just depends on the, um, you know, I mean, what? I guess that's my other note, too, here is like, like through this whole sequence here. There's no scenes of like Saba like egging on Tim or putting pressure on Tim to act, which there could be. But in the absence of that, it's like, you know, what is 
what does Saba need to have happen here too? Like, cause Saba is sort of playing both sides. That's right. What Saba actually cares about is what Zoya does. Not really what Tim, what Tim does is almost irrelevant to Saba. But I think he's Saba is also probably excited to see Tim do his thing as well for Saba. That's just, it's just like, it's just like dessert for him. It's like bonus. Yeah. So, right. I mean, I definitely was, yeah, I was thinking that Sabo is basically just delighted by the whole, like, ex- just like the weird, exciting newness of it all and kind of doesn't matter what happens, you know, as long as he himself doesn't die. And so, yeah, I don't know. We can think more about it. None of it is anything I'm married to, but um, the premise I had was that it, this could be, yeah, or the premise that I'm now going with is that this could be some kind of a misdirection where he's saying now you've got him and we assume he's talking to Tim and then we find out that he was actually talking to Zoya and either the priest didn't hear him or there's a plausible explanation. I was just thinking um, now, too, that part of what Saba might actually be doing, I mean, yeah, maybe he like in- perversely enjoys this, but also he's like thinking about the sort of braggy story that he's going to tell the oh, other yeah. high level club oh, members yeah, after this. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. And how he's going to like make this sound like he had this awesome like experience where, you know, and the fact that he could have died is just, you know, adds credibility. Right. Cause their, oh, yeah. their, their founding story is literally about that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, this is a great story to tell at the Altoff clubhouse for sure. Yeah. And yeah, and he's going to be, yeah, he could even be like kind of composing it in his head. If we wanted to, I don't know if we ever, if we want to let uh, uh, the audience into his head at all, but if we decide to do it, I could imagine him even like kind of co- composing the story in his head and then be like, no, it was, you know, the, no, there were two snakes or like, you know, like embellishing it somehow or like improving it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how we, uh, yeah. I don't know how we get that in there, but I think, I think, yeah, and I like that that's happening at least, but yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, cool. So let's move on to the second round. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So now time for the next set of pages. Uh, we've just found out that Zoya has killed Tim, and we're going to pick up from there. Um, and so we're going to start with a even closer shot on on Zoya's face, which is right after she's killed Tim. And Zoya says in voiceover, My brain doesn't believe yet that Tim is dead. I've never seen anyone die before, or known someone who died. In the next panel, we see a close-up on Tim's dead face, frozen in a look of surprise. Even now, he seems to be interrogating me with his eyes, demanding an answer to the obvious question. In the next panel, it's a wide overhead shot, with Tim's body bleeding out in the middle of the frame, and Zoya, Saba, and Whiskers standing around it, sizing each other up. Why did this happen? In the next panel, we see a trail of red blood as it flows away from Tim. How did this happen? In the next panel, that uh, trail of blood becomes actually a trail of red ink on a virtual whiteboard. And then in the last panel of the frame, we see a hand clutching a stylus, completing the red dot in that same red ink at the bottom of a big red question mark. On the next page, uh, we start with a full view of that whiteboard, which reveals the complete phrase, which is, quote, what remains scarce, question. And that's written in that same red ink. A kindly-looking teacher, Mr. Higgy, stands to one side of the whiteboard, having just completed writing this question. He addresses his single lone student, who is a young 13-year-old Zoya. Now that we've seen that all leverage derives from scarcity, it makes sense to ask what things are actually still scarce in the constellation. 
In the next panel, Higgy gestures with his hands, conjuring a ring of floating identical apples. It's not obvious that scarcity is even an important concept anymore. After all, we can create whatever we want for free at any time, right? In the next panel, we see a faraway view of Zoya sitting at a tiny desk. Her body language reveals herself to be totally bored and disinterested. What do you think, Zoya? Can you think of anything that's still scarce in the constellation? The next panel is a closer shot on Zoya. Can't we take a break now? We've been talking about this for so long. In the next panel, Higgy addresses Zoya. We see them both in the frame. Well, no, unfortunately, we haven't gotten far enough yet to stop, but actually your question might be the perfect way to transition into one of our five main categories. In the last panel, Higgy writes again on the magical whiteboard. Scarcities of time. In the next page, uh, we see a panel with Zoya looking angry and frustrated. But why would time be scarce? We all get to live forever now. Why, Why shouldn't we just do whatever we want whenever we want? In the next panel, despite Zoya's anger, Higgy looks perhaps a bit pleased by the engagement he's getting. That's a very good question. Indeed. If no one has to die, then isn't our time essentially unlimited? In the next panel, Higgy looks thoughtful, as if pondering the question himself. Well, perhaps one way to approach the answer is to point out that even if we have a lot of time, things do still change. In the next panel, Higgy starts getting into the teaching groove, gesturing with his arms. Just because we live forever now doesn't mean that will always be the case, does it? There was already one transition. Why couldn't there be another? In the next panel, we see that Zoya is not buying it. But if you think that way, then you might as well just say that any rules can change at any time, so why bother learning anything at all? Then this whole lesson is pointless. In the next panel, Higgy actually looks a little bit thrown by this point. Hmm. I do see what you're saying there. It's actually pretty astute. On the last panel, we see a repeat panel, actually, of the one we just saw of Higgy again, frozen with the exact same expression, except this time there's no dialogue coming out of his mouth at all. On the next page, we see a wider view of Higgy again in the same pose, clearly frozen in time. In the next panel, we see Higgy's frozen hands gesturing in the foreground, and beyond them, we see Zoya, who now looks somewhat concerned. Mr. Higgy? In the next panel, Zoya turns to see the source of a new voice from off screen, and the voice says, We've put your teacher on pause for a while. In the next panel, Zoya's parents, Richard and Alexis Hall, loom over Zoya's desk, appearing quite imposing. And Richard says, I think he was floundering a bit. Alexis says, I'll take a stab at this one. On the next page, we see Alexis disparagingly sliding Mr. Higgy's frozen form to one side, making a spot for herself as she takes her place at the front of the class. You've learned about birth limits, right? In the next panel, Zoya only looks confused. Right? In the next panel, Richard interjects from the side of the room as Alexis prepares to launch into her lesson. Richard says, I told you we should have checked in on her earlier. Never mind that now. We'll straighten this out. In the next panel, Alexis gestures, and a newborn baby that looks like it could be a member of the Hall family hovers above her outstretched hand. Alexis says, The first time you want to have a baby in the constellation, the cost in time is free. In the last panel of the page, we see a a closer shot on that hovering baby. All it takes is two people deciding they want a child, and presto, a new consciousness is born. On the next page, we're no longer in the classroom exactly, but instead in a kind of abstract void, where we still see that first baby, 
But now a second baby has appeared beside it, sitting atop a small bar graph. But if you want to have a second child, suddenly a waiting period of four days is introduced. Only a minor inconvenience for sure, but a sign of bigger ones to come. On the next panel, we see a third baby appear atop a bar graph four times as tall as the one previous. By the third child, the waiting period is is 16 days, and perhaps you can already see where this is going. In the next panel, we see eight babies now, each one higher than the previous one, showing a clear exponential growth curve. The wait times continue to increase, and once we reach the eighth baby, the wait's about 44 years. In the next panel, we're even closer on that eighth baby, which is teetering atop its giant skyscraper-like pedestal, reaching for a pacifier that has fallen off the side. Now tell me, Zoya, does this baby look familiar to you? In the last panel, we're now back in the classroom, and we see Zoya's face processing this information. And it's clear from the resemblance that she is the grown-up version of that eighth baby. On the next page, in the first panel, we see Alexis leaning across Zoya's desk imposingly. So you might feel like wasting time is no big deal, and no doubt there's others in the constellation that agree with you. In the next panel, Alexis points at Zoya. But you, little lady, are a hall child. One of only eight that will exist for the next century and a half. And in the next panel, Zoya winces as Alexis forcefully states her final point. And so we will not have you treat your time as anything other than a precious commodity. In the next panel, Alexis turns to look at Richard. Was I clear? I think so. In the next panel, Zoya pipes up. But what about Mr. Hagee? In the next panel, Richard and Alexis look surprised by the sudden change of subject. Richard says, What about him? In the next panel, Zoya gestures at the still-frozen teacher. Will he be okay? On the next page, in the first panel, we see Richard looking disappointed, and Zoya looks particularly small and childlike. Richard says, I told you, Mr. Higgy has just been paused, and whether he's okay or not depends purely on what we decide. But what about what Mr. Higgy wants? In the next panel, Alexis and Richard look at each other for a beat. In the next panel, Alexis and Richard now look directly at us, together in the frame, tag-teaming their responses. What Mr. Higgy wants doesn't matter. He works for us. We offered him a very large amount of AG. He signed a contract that gave us total control over his avatar. The next panel, we're closer on Alexis and Richard. Which is a lesson in itself. The most important lesson of all. In the next panel, we see a close shot on Zoya, covered by the imposing shadow of her parents. And Richard says, Never, ever, under any circumstance, sign a contract. And in the next panel, we see Mr. Higgy still frozen in the exact same position that lets you end up like Mr. Higgy. And in the last panel of the page, we see an identical shot of Mr. Higgy, except that now his head has been replaced by a black void. And in fact, what we're actually looking at is the giant poster that we saw earlier for Zoya's art world at the Gaia Awards. Ah, nice. Okay. So yeah, that was interesting. I love the way you got all the baby stuff in there. That's uh, great stuff that um, I'm really happy to have in. Um, And yeah, I guess the big question, the big picture question is just how long is this Zoya flashback section going to be? Oh, I have a... An answer to that, actually. Uh, and I think that's the, that's like, I don't, okay, yeah, well, give me your answer to that. What's, what do so you think I had, that? you know, I had planned to get a little further than this. Yeah. Um, because, but I was sick, you know, so I was, my pages are a little bit lighter this, this time. But, um, 
what I wasn't able to convey, which I could have conveyed if I'd gotten a little further, is that I'm imagining it gets progressively more montage okay. Like, to me, when I looked at what we had sort of planned to do, mm-hmm. this was one of the only, like, scenes that was just, like, not just another side scene of what things we already knew. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This was the one that was, like, a it's pure... It's the foundation, inv- yeah. A pure invention and foundation of her whole backstory and character. And sure. I felt like, this this had to be, like, a full scene um, and hit all these different beats, you know? Um, I mean, honestly, maybe even needs to hit more than I hit, you know? Because uh, I feel like this scene has to carry a lot of work, but then I think we can get really montage after this. Um, and that's why I did give her voiceover in the beginning, even though it kind of, like drops out so i'm imagining this might be the only like thing that's not just a few snippets of dialogue you know Uh uh-huh and then after this maybe the voiceover comes back in and we start moving a bit quicker like yeah we just like then we're just like in and out of scenes with the voiceover controlling it and like here's a line from her dad that's just like a choice line you know and and nothing's really ever slowed down to this pace again Mm -hmm. you know maybe until we yeah, maybe pretty much like for the whole way rest of her time. That's kind of what I imagined in my head. And so that way we don't, you know, break, break the bank on pages. Is this the very first time in the book we see Richard and Alexis Hall? It is. So this also has to be their introduction. Yeah. Okay. So. so one just practical note is like when we see them, we should describe their looks, you know. Sure. So and also those names are not names we agreed um, on. So uh, yeah, that's well, and also I think thing, it's yeah. fine that you, uh, yeah, you you innovated some names here. Obviously, maybe we'll change them later, but no big deal. Um, yeah, I think this is really good. Uh, I'm looking just over it to see if there's any other quick notes that I have. I like the teacher. I like the teacher's um, void head that we've seen earlier. Um. Right, because that the next scene in the montage actually is probably going to be at the Guy Awards. Right, so, so we could probably cut on the poster. My idea is that we just yeah we just cut yeah, great on that. that exactly, yeah, yeah. I think it's a good it's a good first stab at it, and I like the um, I like all the things you're covering, and I think yeah, the question will just be as it goes forward, does it follow the pattern that you're suggesting of it getting more and more montagey, or if or, or do we discover that there are some spots to do some of this exposition later, and can we make this scene a little shorter as a result? And I don't, I don't have the answer yet, but I'll be looking for that. Um, but yeah, I think it's good, and I think it shows um, what we wanted to show. I think, oh, one thing that I don't think is explicitly in the scene that we might want to try to shoehorn in there is um, the idea that Zoya herself is like, not able to just leave this world, right? Yeah, that was uh, that was in our outline, it's and I but it's not. And I just like... didn't. It just felt like one more beat than I had than I could get to in a clean way. Fair but enough. Yeah, yeah. It. Yeah. It's. It's. Uh, yeah. It's. It's. It's implicit right now. You're right. It's not uh, really and, stated. Yeah, and it may be that we can get it somewhere else. So it's just something to think about, I guess. But um, yeah, I I really like this. No no str- no strong notes for now. The other thing structurally that this scene needs to do, which mm-hmm. is sort of hard for it to do until we've done the whole script, um, but I just want to flag this, uh-huh. um, is that this needs to sort of become a blueprint that then gets referenced twice, right? Um, it gets referenced by um, when she goes to visit the, uh, the the culty world, the James Applewhite world, Apollonia. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because she feels bad for those people because like they're sort of like being indoctrinated the way she was indoctrinated mm-hmm. right um and then it also gets referenced when she's like actually joining the uh moments when she's joining the club right and sort of being indoctrinated by them right we had sort of this concept that we would sort of you know reference this beat three times right because we have to sort of we have to sell Zoya's arc in a relatively short amount of time, right? Um, right, right. Yeah, we're yeah we're trying to fill it in sort of late. So yeah. Uh, so well, you know, I mean, I it's impossible for me to like plant imagery for those without having written those, but I just want to flag that that's a thing, right? We do want to keep try to connect those things. Right, somehow. right. And it may be that we have to kind of connect them in a different way than we expected, but yeah, we'll have to we'll have to try to make sure there's some connection with those things. That makes sense. Um, the other thing I want to flag that isn't clear probably because again, I didn't write as far as I planned mm-hmm. um, is I have a little bit of her voiceover and I could think of two ways to motivate her voiceover. And I went with one um, and the one I went with, which is like, she's like, why did this happen? How did this happen? Is that she's sort of like, trying to explain to tim which of course doesn't make sense because tim is dead but like like within her her own mind it's more like her own guilt like Uh why did she have to do this right Right. like why um right she's imagining the villain speech she would have give him give given him had he been bleeding out on the floor without the priest there you know except it's like it's zoya so it's like a reluctant villain i mean she's not like like it's also she's like trying to like say I didn't want to do this, not brag about it, you know. Right. Um, but I feel like so, yeah, that's like a I feel like that's a genre or a, a, a you know a subgenre of yeah, yeah. speech. Like I didn't I didn't want to do this, Mister Bond, but you forced my hand, you know that sort of thing. So that's that's the one I sort of have set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or it's just her trying to work through her own guilt, right, mm-hmm. in her head, rather mm-hmm. than because again, I don't really think of it as a villain speech as like addressing addressing the guilt in your head. Um, but it's kind of is comp- actually, I that might be kind of an insight as to what villain speeches do. Is there like, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a connection. They're, there. they're like um, sort of self-justifying uh, yeah, yeah, propaganda. So. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I, the other one I had that had occurred to me would be that she could be actually, you know, as sometimes happens in voiceover, she's addressing someone in the future, which I guess would have to be like one of the people she rescues from Apollonia in the ending or something. Um, but right, since I don't, right. we don't also know that at that one, I was like, I'm not going to try to write it that way. Cause I don't know how that even turns out. So right. I'll, I'll take this, this other approach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I share your opinion that having like a strong um, motivational choice in the background really helps shape good voiceover um and so far when i've been doing tim's voiceover i have not made a choice like that like i've been sort of intentionally um just letting it flow and sort of not worrying about whether it makes sense and figuring that we would you know figure that out later well, and it may be that his voiceover is just present tense like his thoughts right, right. well in and which that's case, a choice i mean if that's in which what case it is, we wouldn't need to well, that would be like, yeah, we wouldn't need a, like an like a larger, but I think like because this is a flashback, there's really got to be even more of a right. So yeah, it does yeah. seem to me like um, Zoya's thoughts are anchored in the moment of time that we just experienced, right? Like whatever it's whatever she's thinking at the moment following Tim's death. 
or it could be in the future. Um, it could be, it could be, but I think there's, there's already some indication just because we're like zooming in on her eyes and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And that's where her voiceover begins that like that, that it's anchored in that moment of time. And if that's the case, then the, uh, approach that you took where she's basically justifying to herself or justifying to a imaginary Tim in her head, um, it makes a certain amount of sense that that is something I would believe would be happening at that moment. Um, but if we do decide to make it something from the future, like the kids on the, on a, on a Polonia, um, then we would have to, you know, rethink it a little bit from that point of view, but we can do that in a later draft. I think, I, I think it's good to just see what is useful and then try to make that work rather than force ourselves sure. to make a decision first up, uh, you know, uh, before doing it. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think it's good to, to constrain it in that way ultimately. So as, uh, we should go through and then. Well, so I, I was just sort of like, there's the choice that I made. And if you want to continue it in, since you're writing the next pages, like you can, or you can. Yeah. I'll probably it. try to continue it unless it becomes a problem basically. And then I'll just unceremoniously shift and we'll have to solve it later. <laughs> sure. That'll probably be my strategy. That's what I've been basically doing with Tim. So, um, yeah, this is exciting. I'm, I'm excited to get into the next, uh, couple of beats, um, which it looks like starts in beat 32 on our outline. Um, and do some Zoya work, do some, these will be the one, the ones that are coming up are going to be the ones that are basically the, what else happened during scenes you already saw. Right, the, like you know, from Zoya's point of view. Exactly. So exactly. this will be fun. I'll, I'll go and I'll re I'll reread what we wrote before, and then I'll try to figure out you know, a fun way to kind of reverse it or um, expand it or whatever uh, that plays with whatever we already did. You know, to the extent that I can think of that. Um, and then of course we can go back after the fact if uh, if it doesn't match well and and, and change some of the earlier stuff. But uh, that's exciting. That'll be an exciting thing to get into next. Um, we will keep doing this until we get through our draft. So stick with us. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Constellation, Making the Graphic Novel. Our theme song is Pomona by Audios. To subscribe to this podcast, look us up on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher application. You can find us on Twitter or on the web at constellationpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.